What do you expect? What you don't expect. I found myself repeating this formula of the fortune teller facing her pack of cards as I entered the corridor of the Hotel Ansonia on my way up to interview the Persian teacher, Abdul Baha, leader of the Baha'ites. What I expected to find was the apostle of peace, the advocate of the simple life and the universal brotherhood of man in some quiet, unobtrusive sort of place a little apart from the matting crowd, where solitude and reflection might be his for the asking. The Hotel Ansonia, situated at one of the traffic centers, 72nd Street and Broadway, scarcely answers that description, does it? It was near the dinner hour. I stopped for a moment to watch the well-dressed, well-fed-looking crowd pass to and fro, women with pet palms, noisy children under the guardianship of patient governesses, Men reminiscent of the five o'clock cocktail bustling in from showy limousines, polite officials, overbuttoned bellboys, squirrel cage entrances whirling madly. In fact, everything moving at a very high rate of speed. I said to myself, well, of all the places to find the master, what I didn't expect. I might have lapsed into quite a cynical frame of mind if it hadn't been that just then, I noticed how soft and squashy the carpets were, and I thought of the 40 years Abdul Baha had spent in prison. And I said, of course, it's the carpets. They must seem awfully nice to feet that have trod prison stones. I don't blame him. Quite recovered, I received the news from the chirpy clerk, fifth floor, room 111, with a chirpy response and skipped into the elevator. On my way to the more rarefied atmosphere of the upper floors, I found myself hoping that the Baha would tell me I had a lovely soul. They say he finds out the strangest things about you. I felt all sorts of mystic possibilities awaited me on the other side of the door. I stripped my mind of all its worldly desires by a tremendous effort, I shut out the seething noises of the hotel. I closed my eyes. I attained the holy calm. At my fingers' pressure on the doorbell, the door flew open with the most unholy speed. No fumes of incense, no tinkling of bells, no prostrate figures and whispered benedictions. A ruddy-faced, red-haired youth with the facial line of the Orient was before me. He was in shirt sleeves. Surprise made me speechless. He was, however, not perturbed in the least, stood aside for me to pass and said, Abdu'l-Baha and Dr. Farid are out driving. Will you come inside and wait? I scented the perfume of many flowers in my long pilgrimage from the door to the salon, passing several rooms en suite, a little world by itself, an oasis in the sandstorms of glitter and glare. Slipping into a ready chair, 
I looked about to find myself one of a concourse of people, all actuated by the same interest. My editor had given me the information that there were 5,000 Baha'ites in America and about 20 million in the world. So why I should have expected to have the Baha all to myself, I do not know, but I did. I solaced my disappointment by studying the visitors, curious to learn what sort of people the faith drew to itself. An enthusiastic, plump, middle-aged little person gowned in a very worldly manner haloed with a new spring hat, whose artificial aigrettes had the real optimistic slant, was telling the stranger seated near of a domestic disturbance. Of course, it had to do with a cook. I just knew if I believed hard enough, said she, I could make her feel the same. A young woman, daughter, I judged, cast a resigned look mother's way. My glance then caromed with a man who had sped down the corridor ahead of me. He had flying coattails and a black sombrero, so I classified him as from the Middle West, for in my Roger's thesaurus, those terms are synonymous. After several groups of foreigners, alert, silent, expectant, drew my regard. Many prosperous-looking businessmen and many interesting women. There was a pretty girl on a narrow seat, you felt she must have had lots of oversoul. She wore a sad, withdrawn look as one who lives on the heights. A stout man, baldish, with a fringe of long hair on his neck, had the remaining two-thirds of the seat, lolling against her and turning up his eyes to gaze into hers, which were, in turn, turned up. They were very much in the picture. Some suburbanites stared their way admiringly, wishing they could do it. Suddenly there was a stir, murmurs of the master. Many stood up, a few rushed from the room, among them the enthusiast. From an inner apartment came now a strange medley of sounds. There was a chatter of high-pitched American voices, a beautifully modulated one. I learned afterwards was that of Dr. Farid, the interpreter and friend. Dominating all by a peculiar weird quality was a nasal monotone unlike any sound I had ever heard. In my retired corner, I seemed to see again, as once before at dusk, the flock of little lambkins in the park, newly born and bleating. The vision deepened and changed until in place of these were the other flocks of scriptural days on the slopes of Carmel, near the Galilean Sea, those watched over by the shepherds at night. The monotone ceased. I blinked my eyes. Everybody in the room was standing, breathlessly expectant. I rose mechanically. Abdul Baha entered. He is scarcely above medium height, but so extraordinary in the dignity of majestic carriage that he seemed more than the average stature. He wore over biscuit-colored velveteen trousers girdled with white a long full robe of grayish wool. The Panama fez was wound with white folds. While slowly making the round of the room, his soft penetrating faded eyes studied us all without seeming to do so. 
One and, and another he termed, my child. And they were not all young who responded to this greeting. He stopped longest before the young girls and boys, those blossoms on life's branch, as he speaks of them in oriental imagery. A blushing young woman introduced her escort. Master, we have just been married. Such a look of joy illumined the face that in repose looks like a sheet of parchment on which fate has scored deep Kabbalistic lines. He did not want to leave them. He held their hands a long time, then turned and blessed the young man. My dears, if that young man ever thinks of straying from the path of loyalty, methinks the pressure of that hand will weigh heavy on his soul. He patted several people on the cheek, an old man, an apple-cheeked youth, and myself. I got a nice paternal little pat, which made me feel, oh, so much more like folks. We seated ourselves about him. A good-looking young Turk, understudying Dr. Farid, explained modestly, you know, it is very difficult to translate the master literally. I can tell you the words, but no one could possibly interpret the beautiful soul that informs them. Rather nice, that. I thought. The Baha repeated a statement he had made that day to the students of Columbia University. The great need of this country is the spiritual philosophy, the philosophy of the language of God. Everyone wants to find scientific truths, but we should seek the scientific truths of the spirit as well. Natural philosophy is like a very beautiful physical body, but the spiritual philosophy is the soul of that body. If this body unites with the spirit, then we have the highest perfect society. I can imagine repeating his phrases to some of my clever friends who would be sure to say, why, that's as old as the hills. I don't see anything to make a fuss about in that. The time-honored words, even repeated by an interpreter, are so fraught with the Baha's wonderful personality that they seem never to have been uttered before. His meaning is not couched in any esoteric phrases. Again and again he has disclaimed the possession of hidden lore. Again and again he has placed the attainments of the heart and soul above those of the mind. After a few more questions and answers, the meeting is declared adjourned. Abdu'l-Bahá rises and passes into the inner room where he gives some private hearings. No one starts to go. He has actually made New York people forget the dinner hour. That in itself is a victory, I think, don't you? From my corner, I wait my turn, again absorbed watching the human current. Newspaper people go in and out, Turks, Syrians, businessmen, domestic and society women, children. It is said that the wife and daughters of Abdu'l-Bahá, brought up according to Western ideas of education, are living in Alexandria, more or less fettered by the conventionalities of that eastern city. It is also true that in the early days of the Baha'ite movement, 
women performed prodigies of bravery and sacrifice for the faith. So I ask, do you believe in woman's desire for freedom? He adjusts his turban, a frequent mannerism. The soul has no sex. In a supreme moment, as in that of the titanic disaster, should both sexes share the danger equally? Women are more delicate than men. This delicacy men should take into consideration. That is their obligation. If the time ever comes when the average woman is a man's equal in physical strength, there will be no need for this consideration, but not until then. As he says this, he shakes the wonderful full-domed head, and the sing-song recitation has a note of great sweetness. I thought of his childhood, passed among such unspeakable scenes of distress, early matured into knowledge of sin and sorrow. I marveled at his childlike simplicity, which is combined with a sort of ageless spiritual wisdom. I asked, is it possible for us ever to rid ourselves of our grown-up illusions and become, as Christ said, as little children? Certainly. There is such a thing as innocence due to ignorance, due to weakness. It is innate in the child to be simple. But when a person becomes matured, there should be such a thing as innocence of knowledge, of strength. For instance, a child, owing to certain weakness, may not lie. Even if the child wishes to tell an untruth, it is incapable of doing it. This is due to his impotence. But when it becomes old and its morals receive rectitude, then through pure conscious potency can it restrain itself from lying. Do we most need suffering or happiness to open to us the door of spiritual understanding? Trials and suffering for the perfect man are good. For an imperfect, they are a test. For example, a drunkard may, through his sin, lose all his possessions. He is cast into a great ordeal. That is his punishment. But the man who is endeavoring along the paths of virtuous achievement may meet ordeals which are really bounties, for they will help him. Why is a child near the spirit land? Because children are so innocent. They have no stratagems. Their hearts are like spring meadows. I noticed a trembling of the eyelids and that the gestures of arranging his turban and stroking his beard were more nervously frequent. Dr. Farid answered to my inquiry, shall I go now? He has been giving of himself to everyone since seven o'clock this morning. I am a perfect physical wreck, but he is willing to go on indefinitely. Abdul Baha opened the half-closed eyelids to say, I am going to the poor in the Bowery now. I love them. I was invited to accompany them. The Baha met my ascent with a most Chesterfieldian expression of pleasure. Mr. Mills, president of the Baha'ite Society in New York, had placed his car at the disposal of Abdul Baha. 
Can you picture your Aunt Kate and Abdu'l-Baha going to it hand in hand through the Ansonia corridors? Perhaps the guests didn't gurgle and gasp. <laughs> Perhaps. I did feel rather conspicuous, but I braced myself with the thought of the universal brotherhood and really got along fairly well. When we were seated in the machine, every inch of space taken by some member of the suite, I caught myself thinking what an amusing little anecdote I might make of this happening. Just then, the master said to me in a gentle but firm voice, remember, you press people are the servants of the public. You interpret our words and acts to them. With you is a great responsibility. Please remember and treat us seriously. Often during the interview, I had felt like saying, you dear old man, you fine old gentleman. I felt more than ever like it now. As if anyone could hold up that pure white soul to ridicule. There was another gasp of surprise at the Bowery mission as still hand in hand, he just wouldn't let me go. The Baha and I trotted through a lane composed of several score of society's members. A few of the young ladies had their arms filled with flowers, which afterward filled the automobile. Some 400 men were present, belonging to the mission. Just before the services were concluded, I saw the courier stealthily approach the platform and hand the Baha a green baize bag. Of course, I wasn't going to let that go without finding out all about it. And to my whispered inquiry, the Baha said smilingly, Some little lucky bits I am going to distribute to the men. <laughs> what you don't expect. I had the surprise of my life. For what do you suppose those lucky bits were? Silver quarters. Two hundred dollars worth of them. Guess you didn't expect it either. Think of it. Someone actually coming to America and distributing money. Not here with the avowed or unavowed intention of taking it away. It seems incredible. Possibly I may be a little tired of mere words, dealing in them the way I do, but that demonstration of Abdu'l-Baha's creed did more to convince me of the absolute sincerity of the man than anything else that had happened. And it was all done so unostentatiously, so gracefully, without any fuss or fume. The master stood, his eyes always turned away from the man facing him, far down the line, four or five beyond his vis-a-vis, -vis, so that when a particularly desperate-looking specimen came along, he was all ready for him. And instead of one quarter, two were quietly pressed into the calloused palm. Once, a young Turk of the suite slipped in, and before the Baha recognized him, he got a coin. He explained that he wanted it for luck, and the Baha most benignantly patted his shoulder. When he got back to his companions, they all laughed at the joke. I imagine them a merry little family among themselves. I had said goodnight on the platform, so my last view of Abdu'l-Baha was as he stood at the head of the Bowery mission line, a dozen or more derelicts before him, giving to each a bit of silver and a word of blessing. 
And as I went out into the starlit night, I murmured the phrase of an oriental admirer who had described him as the breeze of God. You're listening to the Journey West podcast, dedicated to following the travels of Abdu'l-Bahá in the West. Welcome to the podcast. What an interesting perspective from Kate Carew that we heard at the top of the show. Yes, Kate was the first woman to become famous for her interviews and was also called the first woman caricaturist. Abdu'l-Bahá reached Washington, D.C. on the 20th of April. His arrival was somewhat unannounced, as Abdu'l-Bahá liked to go according to the spirit rather than rigid schedules. The evening he arrived, the master talked at the Orient-Occident Unity Conference in the Washington Public Library. Other talks during his stay in Washington, D.C. included private gatherings at the homes of some of the Baha'i friends, as well as other institutions, such as the Literary Society and the Children's Reception. The talk we will be discussing in today's podcast was given at Howard University, a historically black institution, to a crowd of over 1,000 students and faculty. Joseph Hannon wrote about this event, saying, This is a most notable occasion, and here, as everywhere, when both white and colored people were present, Abdu'l-Bahá seemed happiest. Today's talk will be read by Masaveda Morgan. 23rd April 1912, talk at Howard University. Today I am most happy, for I see here a gathering of the servants of God. I see white and black sitting together. There are no whites and blacks before God. All colors are one, and that is the color of servitude to God. Scent and color are not important. The heart is important. If the heart is pure, white or black or any color makes no difference. God does not look at colors. He looks at the hearts. He whose heart is pure is better. He whose character is better is more pleasing. He who turns to the Abha kingdom is more advanced. In the realm of existence, colors are of no importance. Observe in the mineral kingdom, colors are not the cause of discord. In the vegetable kingdom, the colors of multicolored flowers are not the cause of discord. Rather, colors are the cause of the adornment of the garden because a single color has no appeal. But when you observe many colored flowers, there is charm and display. The world of humanity, too, is like a garden, and all humankind are like the many-colored flowers. Therefore, different colors constitute an adornment. In the same way, there are many colors in the realm of animals. Doves are of many colors. Nevertheless, they live in utmost harmony. They never look at color. Instead, they look at the species. How often white doves fly with black ones. In the same way, 
Other birds and very colored animals never look at color. They look at the species. Now ponder this. Animals, despite the fact that they lack reason and understanding, do not make colors the cause of conflict. Why should man, who has reason, create conflict? This is wholly unworthy of him. Especially white and black are the descendants of the same Adam. They belong to one household. In origin, they were one. They were the same color. Adam was of one color. Eve had one color. All humanity is descended from them. Therefore, in origin, they are one. These colors developed later due to climates and regions. They have no significance whatsoever. Therefore, today I am very happy that white and black have gathered together in this meeting. I hope this coming together and harmony reaches such a degree that no distinctions shall remain between them and that they shall be together in the utmost harmony and love. But I wish to say one thing in order that the blacks may become grateful to the whites and the whites become loving toward the blacks. If you go to Africa and see the blacks of Africa, you will realize how much progress you have made. Praise be to God. You are like the whites. There are no great distinctions left. But the blacks of Africa are treated as servants. The first proclamation of emancipation for the blacks was made by the whites of America. How they fought and sacrificed until they freed the blacks. Then it spread to other places. The blacks of Africa were in complete bondage, but your emancipation led to their freedom also. That is, the European states emulated the Americans, and the Emancipation Proclamation became universal. It was for your sake that the whites of America made such an effort. Were it not for this effort, universal emancipation would not have been proclaimed. Therefore, you must be very grateful to the whites of America, and the whites must become very loving toward you so that you may progress in all human grades. Strive jointly to make extraordinary progress and mix together completely. In short, you must be very thankful to the whites who were the cause of your freedom in America. Had you not been freed, other blacks would not have been freed either. Now, praise be to God. Everyone is free and lives in tranquility. I pray that you attain to such a degree of good character and behavior that the names of black and white shall vanish. All shall be called human, just as the name for a flight of doves is dove. They are not called black and white, likewise with other birds. I hope that you attain to such a high degree, and this is impossible except through love. You must try to create love between yourselves, and this love does not come about unless you are grateful to the whites and the whites are loving toward you, and endeavor to promote your advancement and enhance your honor. This will be the cause of love. Differences between black and white will be completely obliterated. Indeed, ethnic and national differences will all disappear. I am very happy to see you and thank God that this meeting is composed of people of both races, 
and that both are gathered in perfect love and harmony. I hope this becomes the example of universal harmony and love until no title remains except that of humanity. Such a title demonstrates the perfection of the human world and is the cause of eternal glory and human happiness. I pray that you be with one another in utmost harmony and love and strive to enable each other to live in comfort. Now, let's move to the third segment of the podcast, our roundtable discussion with Anna, Jim, and Samir. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm an accountant. I'm Anna. I want to be an interrogator, and I studied English and communications. Hi, I'm Samir. I'm an engineer and an artist. One of the things that struck me about the talk uh, that Abdu'l-Bahá gave was that he said that religious prejudice or racial prejudice was unreasonable and pointed out that all of the different members of the animal kingdom didn't have that prejudice and why should man who has reason have that prejudice and further than that he went on to say that this was not worthy of man he reminds us that we were created noble and that this type of prejudice is not something that's not only not reasonable, but it's something maybe we should be ashamed of. The lack of reason and understanding is what animals, the animal kingdom, I guess, doesn't have. And it doesn't make any cause for conflict, the colors, the different colors of the animals. And with human beings, we take like the, the most basic reason, I guess, to try to formulate hate within ourselves and to impose ignorance on others and the only reason why you wouldn't have any reason or understanding is with the lack of education and I feel like those who who have the power have the education and reason and then they try to manipulate mankind into thinking things like color skin color uh, matters things that don't matter matter and then keep um, like the power for themselves and disempower others and I feel like that that's where that was going uh, at that time. And if humanity keeps going down that path, we, it will take us longer to overcome these um, thoughts and these prejudices that we have so far due to ignorance. abdul says, while man has a reasoning capacity, I must, despite the fact that they lack reason, they live with harmony. But man, like you can see that reasoning, we are using it for another thing, say for for not to associate with other people. It's like because the more you reason, like kind of it's it looks like it makes you suspicious on someone else. Mm. Say if I see uh, someone behaves in some way in which I don't like it, and then the next day I see another person who looks like him, then I think. Ah, okay, these guys are the same category. I put them like in the same category. So that reasoning capacity makes me, like, you know, like instead of using it for um, uniting with other people, it makes me to alienate from, I don't know. He points out that what is necessary to overcome this is nothing short of love, real love. And he, he, he said it made him happy 
to see that gathering because it was a mixture of blacks and whites. And he praised the gathering to come together and hoped that um, from that we would see that this was a, a good result and uh, in, in hope that, that harmony would reign between black and white and how important that was, not just for America, but for the world. It's funny because I feel like uh, he was at Howard University speaking. I feel as if at that time that that place, like a historically black university, that would have been the only place where you would have had a talk where there would have been black and white people together amongst each other in unity. And when he was saying that blacks may, may become grateful to whites and whites become loving towards blacks in order to achieve um, racial harmony, I was thinking, you know, how, how does that work? What does that really look like? You know, because if anybody knows history, especially in America, the American history between like whites and blacks, it was both helping each other all in the same time in order to achieve uh, certain advances that were actually made. So what does it look like for someone to be grateful and what does it look like for someone to be loving towards them? And I feel like that is what unity looks like when it comes um, like between the races. There's no tension there, there's no tolerance. All it is is just uh, pure love, like whatever the essence of love could be, however you love your family, however you love your God, whatever it is that you actually have love for, that's how you love the other person. And for that to just to be the, the strongest foundation that anyone could have, that's the only foundation you have in any relationship in your life with any other person is love. Uh, I, I was, I was uh, remembering what Abdul Baha said in, when he was in London. It's like they asked him how he enjoyed his stay in London. And then he answered, like I have enjoyed London very much, and and the bright faces of the friends have delighted my heart. I was drawn here by their unity and love. And then he was like kind of defining love. Then in the world of existence, there is no more powerful magnet than the magnet of love. So it's like I think maybe. That's the uh, magnet of love that unites, that makes you to see beyond colors. And uh, love, I think in this context, and in probably every context, it does not simply mean an emotion. It means an, a, a, a commitment. Um, it implies action. Here he says that, that the responsibility, as I read this, endeavor to promote your advancement and enhance your honor. This is, uh, in, the, in the entire context, it says, you must try to create love between yourselves. And this love does not come about unless you are grateful to the whites and the whites are loving towards you and endeavor to promote your advancement and enhance your honor. I think this is critical because it implies that um, there's a huge responsibility of effort and um, ceaseless endeavor in promoting the oneness of mankind. And that he points out that this is the cause of love and also that it's impossible to achieve all these things without love. That's, and he says that's a high degree and, it's, and this is impossible except through love.
So sometimes we think of love as being, oh, you know, it's a utopian idea or it's an abstract thought, love. We don't realize the implications it has in terms of sacrifice and in terms of uh, implied action and that this is a responsibility that we have. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately it's love. And, you know, that's, the, the outcome of that is just fantastic for everybody for us, for our children, for our grandchildren. That's it for the podcast this week. Special thanks to Nancy Menden for playing Kate Carew and Masa Veda Morgan for reading. Also thanks to our guests, Anna Okonkwo, Jim Traub, and Samir Akbaldet for participating in the Roundtable Discussion Group. If you'd like more information about Abdu'l-Baha's travels in the West, visit our site at www.thejourneywest.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Journey West. Thanks, everyone. Bye.